From time to time, I run summer schools and spring schools and other online classes for listeners to Tent Talks who are interested in exploring these issues in a deeper way. This material is now available online on our website. If you go to www.tenttheology.com and follow the link to Courses and Resources, you will find a whole collection of in-depth studies and talks and seminars, which you can access free at point of contact. We don't want price to be a barrier to anyone, so the material is offered on a pay-as-you-can basis. We appreciate any support you can give to keep Tent Talks going. And, as always, we hope that the stuff we make continues to be useful and interesting to you as you navigate these very strange times we live in. Visit www.tenttheology.com and look for Courses and Resources. the Tent Talks podcast, where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr. Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social and political imagination. Hello and welcome to Tent Talks. My name is Natasha Beckles. I am a London-based Anglican priest and co-host here on this platform. And this week, I have the absolute joy of interviewing a dear friend of mine, Natalia Nana. Natalia Nana Lesterbush, pronouns of they, she, is a specialist in equity, diversity, inclusion and liberation. He blends their EDL experience with her lived experience as a bicultural femme woman of colour with non-visible disabilities in their work, supporting organisations and individuals on their journeys of decolonization, of equity and inclusion. Natalia Nana centers anti-racism in their ADL work and so works advising organizations and supporting leaders in anti-racism journeys and decolonization and in hosting safe spaces for people of color, global majority communities that are minoritized, marginalized, whose ethnic identities can be in spaces where they're being exploited of being tokenized and she creates spaces she works with organizations and individuals to help them work in a non-extractive way and to help people process and decompress from colonial attitudes together. Natalia Nana was previously the trustee of the Anti-Racist Alliance which is a charity over here in the UK. They are now co-chair of Women in Dev a global network and movement of all women in the international development scene, advocating with grassroots voluntary groups, um, demanding real change and accountability on all women's equity at all levels. Natalia Nana is often invited to participate in panels, interviews, podcasts and discussions. You can follow her on Instagram at Natalia Nana, woman up seven. I'll make sure it's in the details. Natalia Nana and I recorded this earlier this year in the spring. I do pray it's a blessing to you. Sister, how are you doing? How are you doing today? (laughs) 
I'm okay. I'm okay. I've got, um, yeah, my pain's a bit high. I have fibromyalgia. So, yeah, walking through the world in a beautiful golden brown skinned but broken body. Um, yeah, really impacts my week, my day, my experiences. I'm praying for you, and I, I know that anybody hearing this, I pray that right now, wherever you are, because time matters nothing, um, will you put in a prayer for my sister in our conversation today? Because um, we want to talk about the health of our church, our community, and what love looks like between us. And we're going to do that in a particular way. Today, I want us to get into nuftings, nuftings mm-hmm. all the way from here in London, both of us. So we want to get into conversation about decolonization and deconstruction. What is it? Why, for, how? We want to talk about patriarchy and misogyny mm-hmm. in the church. Um, we had better put in some stuff about disability there, actually because it's all there, it's all part of how we dehumanize each other. Mm. We're gonna talk about misogynoir here in London. The community here is still reeling. A couple of weeks ago, we had a um, local child practice safeguarding review, um, March 22nd, sorry, March 22. um, We had uh, a review come out talking about a little girl child cue and it's absolutely traumatized anybody with a heart um what happens Mm -hmm. to um young people so we need to talk about misogynoir it happened to a young black girl um and we are calling her child cue to protect her but we need to talk about what that's about Uh, i want to give people space to think about that and we want to really understand what this stuff is this brokenness as you began the point that lives in our body of Christ, this pain Mm. um, that models it perhaps as a prophetic moment that we're talking from this position. And um, you, my sister, doing most of the laboring, I'm carrying it. I'm a darker skinned woman as well, so I know it well. But the beauty of us having these conversations is sometimes that we're able, you're able to pick out things that I'm so used to seeing that I may not be critiquing yet. Um, to tell us a bit about yourself. How did you come to be who are and where are you now in this journey called life? Big question. <laughs> yeah, well, for listeners, hi. Um, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I'm Natalia Nana, they, she. Um, how have I come to be who I am? Wow. I was a little brown girl in a majority white, almost exclusively white village. Then I was a little brown girl in a very brown population area, but not fitting in with a majority, actually exclusively, apart from myself, my brother, black family in, in Ghana, brap, brap, and white family, white middle class family in England, la da So it's been a real journey. Identity has been something that for me has, has been central to, to me asking the question of who am I, what am I, where where do I belong when I am where I am? I'm going on a real journey with that. And that's partly um, acknowledged in my, my now calling myself Natalia Nana. I have, yeah, I've got like seven names in total, five, four names and really representing different parts of my culture, my heritage, mm. my identities all merging and know that I've often asked myself when I'm in Ghana, like, do I belong here? Because I feel this is home. These are my people. This is my fam. 
and I'm called Obani when I walk down the street and, you know, I'm a tourist here. I don't have this tongue. I don't know these celebrations. I'm an observer of my own culture. And here I'm brown first, then female, then disabled, then queer. So it's like, oh, OK, who, who and what am I? And really just now coming to the place of being like, well, I'm all of these things. It's it's a Rubik's Cube. You know, you might perhaps be showing one side of, yeah, one side of myself more than another. Like, oh, I might be showing more red one day or more green another day. But other days, the whole cube might just be all mashed up, stirred into the pot, shaken up like a cocktail. And that is me. We love it. We love it. Jumbi, jumbi. We love it. We mm. love it. And that's a bit of what God does in all of us. It just gets... Mm hidden in the boxes that we're asked to tick it gets hidden right. in the lives that we're asked to live and um, because we live in a very violent um mm. ideologically violent the word becomes flesh doesn't it always so that idea becomes a word and it becomes a violence that lives in between us mm. But we're coming at this as both as christians we're coming at this both as people who are drawn to someone called Jesus Christ for me yep it's identity is one of the central things about Jesus it's the most solid thing about this man when I read about him um reading about him in John's gospel whether he's talking to Simon the leper or Simon the Pharisee he responds to people differently but he's consistently who he says he is you know mm. I am who I am and it's not just a statement made it's it's a lived embodied reality it's why I'm in love with this man I'm like I just have to be looking at you what what is it you mm. know I cover you I am my attention is on you because you know who you are always and mm. when we get to that point I mean that is just glory just in and of itself because you know it's, it's about having pride in the brilliant idea that God had when he thought of you right and that in itself has been so much of my like spiritual liberation journey within Christianity, within relationship with with Mother God and and Yeshua, Jesus, is really holding to the truth of, well, God said I'm good. God declared me good. And it breaks my heart to see how so many Christians, so many followers of, of Jesus who came to set us free and give life to the full are so shrunk and shrouded and swaddled in a restrictive way in the glow, you know, in the, in the grave clothes like Lazarus, not freed because they're so fixated on the, the fall. Mm. I'm bad. My flesh is bad. Anything that comes out of a man is polluted is bad. That's not well, what a man said. God said I'm good. So I'm going to take him at his word. Ah, and that's, that's liberational. He... It is liberational. Mm. And it's not that the flesh is bad. It's that the, mm. what comes out of the heart. So what comes out of the heart? And that's what we want to be getting into. So when and how did you come to faith? And what has that got to do with EDI work? And what is EDI work? Just <laughs> I don't know, you know. Right. Yeah. Well, it came to faith, I suppose, in my early 20s, was raised in a mixed household. My father's he called himself an atheist. I, I think it's probably more accurate to say agnostic. My grandfather, who lived with us half the week, was a Church of England vicar. And my mum was a non-practicing Catholic. I think I only realised she was Catholic when she was like 50. And a wonderfully, beautifully, I guess the word we use now would be tolerant. 
of just, you know, friends of my parents of different faiths, different identities, different lifestyles. So wonderfully tolerant. And it's so sad to me that actually that, I think, was far more Christ-like, far more beautiful, far more liberational, far more freeing, far more loving than many of the upbringings I see of Christian friends of mine. Mm. So that really helped me be free to ground my I, my understanding of God in love, of my church of the vicar, grandfather, not foisting it on me, but being like, well, God is love. God loves you. God sent Jesus to love you. Like that's the foundation. Mm. And where I think I, I differ from many people who were raised Christian, sadly, is, oh, I take that as true. I believe that wholeheartedly. I believe that God looks at me and adores me like a mother looking at their child. And that, yeah, spurred me into then thinking my early 20s, okay, I believe there's a God. I believe in the Big Bang, yards, yards, but well, what made the gas? Where'd that come from? Then, you know, I believe there's something else. I sense it. I suspect it. And I thought, well, maybe you want to get to know it. And started with Christianity and made a commitment to myself of, okay, you're going to go to Christianity because it's what your culture identifies with most quickly. Most It's within reach. But if you don't feel that actually there is truth here, then you will keep seeking. You will not be lazy. You will read the Bhagavad Gita. You will read the Guru Granth Sahib. You will read the Quran. And it just so happens that, yeah, met met the character, the personhood, the love revealed in Yeshua of Nazareth and was like, I'm sold. And that then links the EDI work, equity, diversity, inclusion work. I'm just like, that's just gospel. Mm -hmm. I'm like, Jesus for me is the original EDI consultant. Mm -hmm. I'm like, you know, like he's there chatting with people from Samaria. He, you know, the first evangelist is a woman of disrepute, a woman of, of, you know, a woman who is ostracized in her community. She's got a complex an outcast story. Woman. She's got a complex story. She's got a complex story, but she's an ostracized outsider woman and he includes her and she's the first evangelist and she's from Samaria. So you've got all these intersecting identities with her and he includes her. He brings her in. He then stays in her village. I'm like, well, that's equity. That's inclusion. That's Christ. More than that, most important teaching on worship and truth. So then... Tell us a little bit more about decolonization, uh, what led you into it, what is it? Define it, actually, because we have decolonization, deconstruction, people talking about liberation work. Can you just help us Mm. know where we are before we jump in? Oh, I can try. It's funny because for me, the language came after I was already doing this, asking these questions, exploring, and then I found language for it. Oh, that's what I'm doing. So deconstruction of my faith um, really began about three years ago. So I've been a Christian for, for what, about 17 years in a more evangelical tradition and understanding of Christianity. Not so much like take the Bible literal, literally like that sort of extreme, but still very much like, OK, accepting what I've been told by generally white, cis, straight, male church leaders or women performing in the same ways as, as white, cis, straight males. And not really, not really critiquing it and walking around it. And, and the beauty of deconstruction is, I think it's more like, you know, you go into your loft and you bring out all your boxes and you put it all in the living room and it's a mess. So Richard Raw talks about order, disorder, reorder. Mm. And people kind of get scared of deconstruction because they get scared of the mess. They get scared of that in-between phase where you've just got boxes and dust and childhood toys and you've got piles of charity shop, 
recycling bin, throw away and keep. But I was like, it's incumbent upon us as rational, mature creatures to have the guts to do that. And frankly, if my God isn't standing at the end of it, then they weren't a real God in the first place. They were just a straw man. So for me, it's an ongoing process of taking my beliefs and my practices out of the loft where they've been for 17 years and not questioned, not looked at, walking around them, taking them out. And now it's that reordering of, okay, what am I putting in the pile to keep? What am I like? Oh, okay, I'm not sure if I'm going to keep that one. I'm going to just put that in the bag and maybe keep looking at that, you know, go back to that. And what am I like? Nah, that belief needs to go. And actually instead, God, what's a belief that you want to, that you want to grow in me, that you want to walk around with me instead? So that's deconstruction. Yeah, yeah. But then within that, I think it's incumbent upon all of us. You're going to walk around your faith, then mate, you need to walk around the whiteness of it. You cannot fully deconstruct your faith, healthfully deconstruct your faith, if you're not going to look at the impact and presence of colonialism in it. And colonialism I use as essentially a shorthand for white supremacy, patriarchy and capitalism. Because that is what colonialism was the package of. It was white men wanting to capitalize on the wealth of black bodies and brown bodies and brown resources. And and the earth, too. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Right. The brown mother earth, the actual very soil that we have um, and the bodies that come from that, the bodies that most represent that and are closest with that indigenous bodies and indigenous cultures being wiped out by colonial capitalism. So for me, the word decolonization, it also means I, I'm a lot into the kind of what ideologies people are operating from. And we have a lot of Greekness in our church thinking. Um, we have a lot of medieval, post-crusader, you know, kind of um, propaganda mm-hmm. in there. Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. have, you know, mm-hmm. middle, well, we have Greek ideas, Aristotle mm-hmm. coming through the Moors into mm-hmm. Christian thought, you know, Thomas Aquinas, all of these being absorbed into that at that particular time. Mm-hmm. And what one of the things that breaks my heart is that the kind of Greek thought that comes mm-hmm. in at that point seems to interrupt our ability to think about the image of God. And we get a very kind of oneness, the, you know, the, we, we get almost sounding very Islamic, actually, the Islamic perspective of God. God is one and untouchable in that, that point where the whole point of Jesus is that we have got this touchable God who came and lived amongst us and show us, showed us the way to do that. So I think, yeah, colonization maybe I need to broaden my understanding of how colonization or empire building has actually Mm -hmm. been taking place within Christianity obviously probably since you know Constantine and and that kind of dynamic at that particular point yeah it's a lot also I think of humility of recognizing oh my faith isn't what I thought it was and that scares a lot of people away I think I would say like on the point about it being Islamic it's you know I love Sufi Islam where it's so experiential it's embodied you know it's imminent but yeah looking at colonialism I suppose the capital C of the colonial period but before that you know the concept of missionaries the concept of being sent out to me, it's about how it's done, and too often it was done and is done, definitely nowadays, in a way that is colonial. 
you know, I love looking at the example of Paul, even though he and I definitely have arguments of him. <laughs> we all do. <laughs> honoring, like anyone with sense does, I would say. Um, but, you know, him honoring the culture that he's in of, OK, you've got all these statues. OK, cool. Let me talk to you about this one. He doesn't knock down the others. Mm. But then white supremacist capitalism is all about, OK, going into a culture and eroding it. But I think there's something also in what you're saying of just like people don't know their church history yeah. and to really understand. So for me, my deconstruction journey started with with, you know, with the helpful teachings of white men. Brian McLaren has been inordinately helpful for me in understanding the history of how platonic thinking, that dualism, mm. that binary, oh, heaven up, earth down, heaven good, earth bad, flesh, spirit. Gnostic, Gnostic. Yeah, but that was never, ever... That was never, ever Judaism, never, ever humanity. We are spirit, flesh, mind, all in one. And then with Plato, and as you say, the Greek, like, you know, the Greekification, really, of our, of our faith, that's all lost. It's issues, it's issues, because the whole point of the incarnation is that this is an embodied experience that God is, becomes, becomes flesh. That's the whole point. And yeah. so to end up with this brain on a stick <laughs> right that is just which again so... is so it's so western it's white supremacist in culture but what's so dangerous and insidious is they don't recognize it's a culture they just think oh this is fact this is truth because it's yeah. like well white white culture white church isn't looking at its roots of like nah you guys got infected by plato yeah. so actually you now are divorcing experience an embodied experience at that and and environmental experience and it's all just mind. It's, it's what books have you read? It's, it's, you know, how do you talk about God? And and how you evidence it in a particular way. Right. And it's one of the dumbest questions you can <laughs> get that, you know, well, unless it's empirical, unless you can weigh it, unless you can see it. And it's like, how do you weigh your mother's love? Weigh it. Right. It's, uh, you know when it's, it's like, yeah. you're asking stupid <laughs> questions. <laughs> you're asking dumb <laughs> questions right now. Jolly, quasi, <laughs> But it, it's, it's that, and it's also for me, like I actually used to work in, in um, monitoring and evaluation and I used to work in it for social impact with, with yeah, yeah. Um, sex and gender violence of how do you measure social change? How do I measure that I've taken someone on a journey? How do I measure that you're more inclusive now than you were before? And it's like, yeah, you can look at measuring it. And one of the measurements we need to use is how does it now feel being in that room? Exactly. How does it feel? When And it's so interesting, I feel like, you know, in terms of race, the church and whiteness has such, such a cowardly, I'd say mm. sinful aversion to it. Mm. And to the distrust of black and brown experience is, is sinful and is real. And what I found so interesting, though, is when the Me Too movement erupted, rightly so, there was a common language I could use. And I'm training and working with women of white color I could say to them, you know how you just know, you know how you just know when you hug a certain man in church at the peace and you just get a vibe and you just know, and you're trying to explain it to, to the men in your life. And they're like, oh, well, he was just hugging you. It's no big, no biggie. And you're like, I know. And every woman knows what you mean when you say, oh yeah, hugging that guy. Mm, yeah. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's what we're talking about. So trust me when I say, oh, that felt racist. Oh, but how do you know it was because of your race, Natalia? Just trust my embodied experience, my gut, my body, the spirit within me, the, the brain, the syntaxes that are flowing through my nerves. That told me. It's the, it's the, 
the fact that your subjective experience is planned by God and he knows some of the things that you are going to know over and above anyone else. And nobody can tell me what it is to be a woman. Oh, amen. No one can tell me what it is to be a woman, what it is to be a black, black woman. I mean, part of my deconstruction is... I guess, yeah, I would disagree with you in that sense, like, oh, God, planning my experiences. That's not really the view that I have of, of God. A, a, and it's, it's, I hold it all lightly as well. Like, I definitely want to caveat. This is what I'm thinking and walking around and holding as of the 1st of April 2022 when we're chatting. Yeah. I would say, like, I sort of feel like evangelicalism, I was in the Evangelical Church of England, beautiful, beautiful space. But evangelicalism really has this sense of, like, you must find God's plan for your life and, you know, when you're sinning, you're deviating from that. And then the Holy Spirit's job is to get you back on track, back to that path. You know, like you're following the blue dot that Google Maps has set out for you. And then actually over the last few years of really contemplation, I'm really into mysticism and just being and sitting with God, a Christian mindfulness, Christian meditation, as, as the desert fathers and mothers were doing. I'm really just thinking, you know, what? I feel like I see God more like less as a director you know, less is that I've got a script and your job is to read the lines of the scripts. And, and every time you're deviating, I have to say, cut. Oh, we need to get her back on path. Get the coach in here. Get the Holy Spirit on it. Instead, I see it more as like God and I are sitting in the writer's room. And God is saying to me, like, Natalia, and I think that'd be a great line for you. I think that'd be a great plot development for you. What do you think, baby? And similarly, I might be like, God, I really feel like doing this and moving here and taking that job. And God might be like, well, Okay, if your gut's telling you, if you think you'd enjoy that baby, I'm with you. You know, we could write that in. But here are some things about that choice that you may not see. Let's walk around it. Let's talk. Let's collaborate. God and I are co, co-creators, which I think is biblical because Adam, I take that story metaphorically, but still I think it's a beautiful picture for God's relationship with humankind. Adam was called into co-creation. You know, they were given the power of naming. Naming something is so powerful, mm. putting an identity onto it, relating with it. And final thought on that is, yes, the incarnation, I would say, is like the apex, the apex of God relating with, with humankind. But God was physical with us beforehand. You know, the bush that Moses was relating to was a physical burning thing. The wind that Elijah felt on his face when he was when he was cotching in the cave, having some down retreat time. That was a physical thing. God touched his face and spoke in his ears as a physical hearing and feeling in his soul. It was all of it. It was incarnational in that sense. And then I feel like Yeshua's birth and life is the is the crescendo of God's embodied experience with us. That's really helpful to hear the nuances of um, where we're at. I think for me, I'm in a journey where some things, God knows my personality. He knows something about mm. how I might react to a situation. So he's not telling me what to do in this yeah. situation, but he knows my day. And so yes. when, when certain sugary goes on, I'm looking at I'm looking for the spiritual data. Perhaps I'm slightly Buddhist at that point. I'm watching mm-hmm. it move across, and I don't need to. I I go into that kind of Kairos moment because mm-hmm. I trust that God, you saw my day, and you know to move something about where I was at. You know something about what happened yesterday, how full my cup mm-hmm. was at this particular point, and so it gives me those moments to see that so there's been times. I'm a very strong woman. I walk in a space strong, psychologically strong, mm-hmm. but that that is a formative something that comes from being a black woman in a space that is so violent towards us Mm -hmm. and so there's times when 
situations have to happen when I am more vulnerable for me to have that compassion to connect with myself and to therefore connect with other people so it's not that he's managing he's not the he's directing that day he definitely knows the 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 filament of justice the filament of Mm -hmm. mercy the filament of love that runs within me and I think your 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 subjective experience at my subjective experience as a black woman of Caribbean heritage of Barbadian Caribbean heritage gives me a particular viewpoint so I ask particular mm-hmm. questions and then we're together as the body of Christ we're going to ask different things and we we learn something about the cracks and fractures of our mm-hmm. world by listening to each other my issue is when we're in evangelical spaces not just evangelical spaces mm-hmm. let me tell you you've got yeah, yeah. Tri- trad anglo spaces that want to say that they're inclusive and then pff, they don't know mm-hmm. how to talk to women and it's it, it's bordering on misogynistic boo so in terms of that you you walk into spaces they say they believe in the bible the bible is not god's actual writing Let's get that. We don't have whatever Jesus wrote in the sand. It's not his mm-hmm. actual writing. We have the witness of the evangelist. We have the witness. So if you're saying that you don't value human experience, you best write off the Bible. Right. Because, and I can remember being, I was at St. Politis, and we can remember us having a conversation one day. The place, you know, mostly evangelical situations, much mm-hmm. love, black, black for everybody that was there. But it took a good friend of mine who comes from a trad Anglo situation yeah. to point out to everybody, you know, the ch- the Bible was written by the church. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you, you could feel it in the air because you would have thought it was a heresy that the person said, right. you have to help people understand this. But they don't want to understand it because it's so uncomfortable. Paul yeah. is part of the church. The, ang- the evangelists are part of the church. The church is writing that. And so for you to, for us to live in this day and age and have people confessing the name of Jesus, as you know, you can't do that by, except by the Holy Spirit, confessing it. And then we are negating their experience, gaslighting their experience. This is problematic. We are going to end up on the wrong sheet. So anyway, this is not my interview. Let me get. No, 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 no. I'm loving it. It's all stimulating and it all goes in the part, sister. But I think for me, no, not but. And I think for me, like all of that, like, yeah, recognizing, okay, the church crafted the Bible. The church decided what books, like actual. And when we say the church, what is that? That's human beings. And that was just so instrumental in my deconstruction. And for me, thankfully, I'm like, well, I know God. I know God so well or so closely. It, It doesn't shake my faith. To, to look at this whereas I think most people don't because it's so scary but that's why Jesus says build it on rock not sand mm. so I'm like well for me okay the, the bible was crafted and chosen and selected the books within it are chosen and selected by the church well what's the church the church was a group of men generally brown and then later more white-skinned men of power men of influence okay that changes things Okay, it doesn't make me discredit the Bible. It certainly makes me consider why is this in here? Why is this book in here? Why is this story in here and not others? But then also linked with that is, for me, it's been so helpful to understand, and I think everyone should have to, why does not include it in alpha courses and stuff? Understand how Jewish culture wrote. It's kind of like, you know, when you, when you study Shakespeare in school, you need a teacher to explain to you Shakespearean culture and language and metaphor. Yeah, you do. 
So I'm like, well, we're reading biblical stories, particularly in the First Testament. We're reading biblical stories and we're expecting them to be factually, scientifically accurate because that is the way, the modality through which we engage with scripture as a post-Platonic society. But that's not how it was. It was just like, that's not how it was. They write in metaphor. They write in exaggeration. They write in colour and euphemism. And they would have all got it because, and it's a scary thing that white people still don't kind of get. It wasn't written for us. Yeah, yeah. I think lots of people don't really want to critique it because they're scared that then it will lose value or lose truth. And I'm like, well, if something is true, it's true anyway. It's true regardless of whether it's written by humans or whether it's dictated by God. Um, which, you know, was never said anyway. For me, like like you were saying in our chat earlier of like how God is using our experiences and you said in here, like God's using our identity. I'm like, well, God's using Paul's as well. But I do just, I wonder if Paul would be happy or perhaps rolling in his, in his tomb to know that his letters to his church friends, his Ooh. synagogue friends are now held in the same book as the Ten Commandments as the the speakings and teachings and revelations of Yeshua, the Messiah. I I think he was writing to his churchmates some instructions and teachings. And I think also we need to give him a chance to evolve. That actually just as my teaching now is very different to what I would have been saying as a as a Bible teacher, a small group leader, you know, 15 years ago. I'm like, oh, how about we allow the people who also wrote letters and teachings in the Bible what is it for us to allow them to evolve and grow as well and not hold them as fixed entities, but actually to allow the spirit to continue growing and transforming and using their experiences too? That's really helpful. Um, I think my perspective has always been lemon juice, that, you know, we are lemons and sometimes we are in these crushing experiences and out of this comes this essence of who God plans you to be. There's a sweetness in it. There's a bitterness in it. And it reflects and captures some of who you are. But in that is, a, is, is something of who God planned you to be. He saw the situation that you were going to be in. Yeah. Um, and your, your our, our journey in character is learning how to respond to those situations um, in a way that remembers that there is a God and he does reign. And, uh, and that can be hard because our trauma experiences can be making our... Um, mm capacity for hope, capacity for faith and for love reduce in different ways. But I, I love saying this word, I digress, because I like to do it a lot. <laughs> it's <laughs> but, a brown you know, girl really, conversation. Of course we're going to digress. It's good. It's good. I love, you know us, we, we have our conversations already privately. So it's, it's always welcome everybody to uh, the happy life of Natasha and Natasha. <laughs> Natalia Nana, yes. because this, these are conversations. This you are getting some Socratic time <laughs> with mm. us, just listening in on so what goes on. So, <laughs> my next question is like: Is there a relationship between the EDI, I'm, EDI work that you've ended up doing and the decolonization work I'm doing? I, I, I'm, I know in my head, I'm thinking, you know, God knows that your heart would be led and 
attracted to and that your journey has brought you into discussions around that so to me it's obvious that you're you're going to be in that because you know your ministry and the work that forms you is is really always mixed up and I think that we should Mm -hmm. be better in our kind of discipleship of helping people understand the work that you think that isn't has got nothing to do with the your religious life has got everything to do with it and it's training you and certainly my background as a teacher my background as a a trainer as a EDI trainer myself as looking at um, underperforming groups is hugely part of my journey to priesthood hugely part of the work that I do um, for the London Diocese around serious youth violence so I I just want to get your perspective on on that too. I think for, for me, and why am I saying I think? For me, they're definitely entwined, they're definitely interlinked. I recognise for many others, their work is not connected with who they are. You know, it's something they do. I would dispute that. I would interrogate and question that because I suppose even if you're making the choice out of, oh, it's not my heart, it, it's, it's financially viable, so I do this job. Well, that in itself is your heart because what you're saying is, okay, my heart is prioritising. I'm going to reduce my exposure to happiness and fulfilment because actually I want money and security. That in itself is your heart. That's showing what your heart um, is prioritizing, is valuing. For me, yeah, like the work I do comes out of who I am. It always has done. I used to work with children with disabilities. I've been a, a teacher of religion and philosophy and ethics. I love my students. I'm still in touch and friends with some of them now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, they're too entwined. What I would say, though, is that there is so much EDI work going on. And when I started my EDI, my equity work, it wasn't decolonized. Yeah. And that's dangerous. It can be dangerous. I wouldn't say it is dangerous. It can be dangerous. And what it definitely is, is less efficient, less effective. So, I mean, efficient, no, efficient is a white word. It's less effective. It's less, it's not going to have the same change because you're not getting to the root. Kind of like, you know if you're weeding a garden or something, if you're just chopping the weed, if you're just trimming it from the top, well, then obviously it's going to come back. What you need to do is actually get the, 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 the trowel or whatever it is. Why am I using the gardening analogy? But you need to actually get in there into the root and that's colonization, that's critiquing, that's deconstructing. You've got to actually like not just dust the surface, you've got to actually get down into the foundations. And that for me is where decolonization and EGI must go hand in hand. So I'd say like one thing that can happen is, you know, why I said dangerous is that diversity and inclusion or particularly, you know, white culture has a real fixation on diversity. Oh, we need to diversify. We need to be more representative. Optic. Okay. Okay. You do. You should. Why? What's your motivation here? Just to represent? Okay, but then what about the safety? What about the inclusion and belonging element? And to do that, you've got to change. Mm. You've got to change. But you can't do that if you don't even realize that you need to. But yeah. actually what we instead see, and we see this so replicated in the church, Church of England in particular, similarly in politics, I think they're very similar institutions of, you know, you see women, like for the most part, cis, straight, white women, middle-class women come in and they're perpetuating misogyny and performing patriarchy. Yeah. They're just, they're just preaching and, and teaching in the same way because they haven't decolonized and really looked at what is feminist leadership? What is female leadership? What is the divine feminine within this? Mm. So for me, in terms of EDI work, 
Well, I can talk about inclusion, I can talk about the Equalities Act, I can talk about equality and treating people the same, that's not equity. Mm. I can talk about that, but if I'm not really looking at, oh, why is it that I have an aversion to employing people with disabilities? Why is it that I have an aversion to flexible working? What is it there about power? What is it about control? What is it about trust that that shows up? That for me is decolonizing. Decolonizing is self-critiquing, is walking around. It's, it's sifting through our culture and looking at what fears, what distrust, what supremacies, what power dynamics are within that. I can do EDI and give you a training on unconscious bias and equality and how to treat people, the outworking. It's just performative. Decolonizing mm. is actually going within and really doing that more anthropologists like rather than being an anthropologist and just looking you're being a a paleontologist you're getting out your little duster and you're dusting the bones and you're looking at what's in the fossil and you're really critiquing what is in the water here yeah that's really helpful to explore it because there is and my mind as you said sifting was you know jesus says to um, Peter, I'm sifting you. You know, the devil has asked to sift you in this particular moment. This is just before his passion. This is just as uh, Peter is there proclaiming that he will never let mm. God get down at this point. He will never deny him. And obviously we know where that ends up. And if you're not doing that sifting work, if you're not, you, you will come in with hands with the best, best of wishes and intentions, but actually you'll 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 find that there are parts of you that work in absolute opposition to the narrative that you're trying to talk yes. about a point and and so that to me that's really helpful just that connection as to what this work is about allowing it, it, we've been asked to be sifted but that god is present in that pro process and he's praying for you he's working with you in that process for you to get where you need to be yeah, I, I don't think I'd necessarily even say it sort of get where we need to be, because I think for me that, I guess that what brings up in me when talking about capitalist language, it's about it is, it the is, destination and, and the accomplishment and what we've achieved, what we have to show for it. Whereas <laughs> me, it's, it's that, yeah, it's just the walking in the, in the garden and just chatting with God. But yeah, you know, we look at the story of Peter and it's so interesting how that's preached. Uh, so, but it's okay because he then learned his lesson. And I'm like, but but you can be Peter, you can be saying something that you 100% mean with one part of your heart and brain and doing exactly the opposite with the other because we are all in process, but you're all in a process of unbecoming and becoming at the same time. And white supremacist, patriarchal, Western church culture doesn't allow for that, it's so binary. But actually I love like, you know, more brown, black culture, you know, when the non-colonized parts, psh, it's storytelling, it's narrative, it's how we're doing this conversation. It's not, okay, question one, next, next, you know, a PCC agenda item. I'm like, oh my gosh, let's sit and talk and break bread and discuss and commune. Jesus didn't have no agenda. He responded to concerns and questions and real life situations. This, this white culture orderedness, this really Greek Greco-Roman order culture, it's so restricted and limiting. And I think very fear-based, you know, people don't deconstruct, don't decolonize themselves because we're afraid of what we'll see, because the connotation is if I see that, then there's shame. If I see that I'm lacking, if I see that I'm sinful, if I see that I'm not good enough, I'm not godly enough, 
Whereas actually I love the more you mentioned Buddhism and I love I love Christian mindfulness. I love all mindfulness and, and I love lots of Buddhist practices in particular. Like I take the teachings and I put it in the stew of how I can use it. But actually just being a mindful observer. And actually, what if we were to say to ourselves, oh, Natalie and Anna, baby, oh, I noticed some hypocrisy there, girl. Mm. You, know, you said in church last week, or you said to yourself, oh, you know, my value is environmentalism, but here you are going with the deal and you're buying something in plastic. I thought that's a small example, but it's a day-to-day one that I can expect people to really live with. And I've had to stand there in the queue, stand there in the, in the, in the aisle of Lidl and be like, Natalie and Anna, baby. You're in conflict with yourself here, honey. Which which one are you going to get? And just, I mean, it's a small example. I could think of much, much better examples. Yeah. <laughs> but, but that sense of just actually almost giving myself a, oh, thank you for looking at that, sweetheart. Now you've looked at it, we can, we can chew fat. We can chat with mama. We can say, okay, mama, sister spirit. Oh, what is that? Why is that there? And not it's there because I'm sinful and everything that comes out of my heart is bad. Why? Well, first of all, no beauty, love, kindness, compassion, care, generosity come out of my heart. My heart is good too. Absolutely beautiful heart. And there's also envy, insecurity, jealousy, selfishness, tightness, all of that. But for me, it's then, okay, mama, let's go on a journey. Let's, let's have the torch. Let's go through those caverns and let's look at what maybe has been put into my heart, into my body, into my thinking, because I exist in a heteronormative, white supremacist, ableist, patriarchal society, and I'm infected with some ideas and some thinking. And, 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 sure. and more than that, it's, I think we are coming from communities that have been affected by that. There's no way you can separate mm. out, you know, it, you'll say, you said that earlier, effective is a white word and it, and I want you to unpack what that means because for me coming as you know I'm coming from an education background I watched a whole generation effectively pissed away by yeah. education educators who thought it was okay for those kids to come out to have lower expectations for them so I've had a lot of relationship with places like Ofsted now it's not mm-hmm. what you want to be your god it's oh. not how you want it to be but there has to be a point so there's there's one of the things that irritates me in the church is when you ask them about well what's your equalities data you know what 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 Mm -hmm. is your ethnic breakdown they can never give you an answer about that and that is problematic because in the same way with sexual abuse if you don't you have a group of children who can't tell you identify different parts of their body when they're being abused you can't Mm -hmm. articulate that in Mm -hmm. the same way you know there is an aspect of the data matters because yeah. you know god is an abundant god yeah and and they, there is stuff that we can look at so it's i want yeah. you to just nuance what that means because with the, these two different ways of thinking the the rationality can help us but if it's used to weigh blackness weigh you know how straight my hair is if it's used to to measure things that it was not yeah. intended because to of all things it's how it's used you know I love data I love rationality I love all of that I'm such an intellectual I'm really cognizant and I'm on a journey if we could get back more with my body so yeah so two responses in that and that well then leads us well into talking about massage noir and and you know finishing up with talking about as you said like you know really honoring a, a, a space to talk about child cue but in terms of the word effectiveness I 
love etymology, which is like tracing the roots of words and what they mean. I love language. My father's an English lecturer. Yeah. I love words. I love books. My granddad, you know, was a, was a preacher. Words are just in my DNA of who I am. They're very meaningful. So for me, I often sort of do that and correct myself. Say, like, oh, do you mean that word? Maybe mm-hmm. what word are you actually trying to get at? And often when we use a word, it's a shorthand. You know, it's, it's a code. It's a when I say, you know, effective, I'm like, oh, what I mean by that is, oh, it's quick. Sorry, if, it, like, yeah, oh, it's efficient is the word I use. It's like, oh, I mean, it's quick. I mean, it's, it's, it's done quickly, it's done with speed, it's done with ease. Well, that's not necessarily actually how you bring about goodness, good work, good change. Actually, no, that's, that's not, I don't want to say efficient. Efficient is, is very capitalist, you know, the whole capitalist economic system is based on, and so much even a church culture is based on efficiency. It's based on doing as much as you can with the least resource, the, least, the most output for the least input. How can you get the most bums on seats in a church yeah. so that the tithes, and how can you find the most efficient way to get the tithes? It's sickening. It is. And even like, even how we preach of, okay, we'll use three C's because that's the most efficient way of conveying a message and, and story. I'm like, yeah, it is for, for white Western capitalist culture that receives information in that way. I'm a storytelling culture, uh, like Jesus of Nazareth. Like Jesus of Nazareth. So, yeah, wanting to bring back more of that flow, that freedom, that go with the river, <laughs> just go with it. I, I, I listened to one speaker talk about the fact that actually now our church is a listener centric, mm. you know, a way that we communicate is listener centric, where when Jesus, he says it quite openly, is that have ears to hear it, let them hear. So there's no listener centric whatever. <laughs> those people he's in relationship with he explains things to but it's mm-hmm. down to you to do some of the work and then people complain that we've got a church where oh they're a bit consumer the, the community is becoming a bit consumer it's, yeah. it's capitalism manifesting yeah. in your church and and it's like when are we going to get to a point that we're ready to deconstruct decolonize our ideologies when we approach church Mm. and think about you know what kind of culture are we making and how are we making it safe but I want to go back to that point you said about the etymology of a word we have here a word misogynoir talk to me what do you know about the etymology of that word and what has it got to to do with child q oh well misogynoir is an example of a word put in place to to demonstrate intersectionality. So intersectionality is a theory um, developed as a legal theory developed by Kimberly Crenshaw in America to really address a legal situation where there was a court case of a black woman who was not employed in her organization, did not get a promotion, and she was suing. And the judgment came back as saying, well, no, we're not finding for you because they do hire women and they do hire black people. So clearly you weren't discriminated against. But what was interesting is, well, no, they hired white men in management positions and the blacks, sorry, white women, beg your pardon, white women. So women were white and the black men who were hired were more in the cleaning positions, et cetera, et cetera, but they were men. So it's like, okay, so black men are hired, white women are hired. I'm neither of those things. You're looking at me as a woman. You're not looking at me as a black woman yeah so actually misogynoir really hits to that intersection of as as women we face misogyny 
it's a fact. It's evidence. Get over it. It's true. 100%. We face misogyny and we face racism. But what this is saying is, oh, we're facing a specific type of racism that is only targeted at Black women, our noirness. Our mm. blackness brings about a different type of misogyny. And that the type of misogyny targeted at Michelle Obama, the type of misogyny targeted at Meghan Markle, the type mm. of misogyny targeted at Serena Williams, all have racism within them. It's the marriage mm. of misogyny and racism. And I find it fascinating and betraying and sad with child Q. I'm okay, she's a girl. So her body tell us, tell us a bit about the story for those people that don't know, if you know what you can say. Well, yeah, as you said in your introduction, she's a little girl. She's a 15-year-old girl in East London of, of black skin. And her teachers, you know, the people who were there to act in loci parentis, who were essentially her legal parents during the day, they one of them thought that they smelled weed on her. Um, weed as in the, the drug, the smell of cannabis on her. So during a mock examination, she was taken out of her exam. Out of her exam. Only um, we who are teachers are in, baffled by that one because nobody takes a child out of their exam. Right. I want to say high-performing child as well. Okay. So a child who, who stays up nights studying, you know, but they didn't think she'd been up studying. So they wondered if she was high and intoxicated was a previous interaction. And the mother had to say, no, she's not intoxicated. She's been up all night studying. Mm -hmm. And the misogyny of the, sorry, the, the racism of that is if it was a white girl, oh, you'd probably assume she'd been up all night studying. If it was a little Hannah or a little Sarah, you'd assume she'd been up studying. Black girl, oh, is she, is she drunk or on drugs? Um, so in this case, in this recent case, that was that was her previous history with the school. So already you can see she's in a school where she's not seen, not respected, not valued, not being seen as innocent, not being seen as victim, being seen as, as perpetrator, as aggressor, as more likely to be having a relationship with drugs. Why? Mm. But why though? Oh, because she's got black skin. Oh, okay, of course then. Pulled out of her, ex her mock examination, the teacher checked all of her belongings, went through her bag, went through her jacket, went through her coat, all of her things being rifled through, didn't find any drugs. So at that point, rather than say, okay, really, really sorry, are bad. Here, have a sip of water, have a deep breath. You okay? You got this? You ready? Okay, go back to your exam. We'll give you extra time. Oh no, this little girl has black skin. So you know, our next step is, our next step is to call the police. Our next step is to call the criminal justice system to get the, the people who deal with criminal or those who are labeled criminal in our system, because we already know that you're more likely to be labeled a criminal if you have black or darker skin than a white person. L like the case last week where a black man was stopped for wearing a jacket because it was 18 degrees. So white people got a bit crazy and got their flip-flops out. And because he had a coat on, he was handcuffed by police for wearing a coat in a culture that says, oh no, that must be criminal because you're wearing a coat while being black. But yeah, she was then, the police came and, you know, to give the school, if I choose to have a gracious assumption, they had a concern for her as a victim who had been involved, maybe was being groomed and being put into an unsafe situation with the, with the presence of drugs. I still don't quite understand then why her parent or a social worker wasn't called, why the school safeguarding person wasn't called. And I still don't get why this couldn't wait another 90 minutes for her to finish her exam. 
I'm a bit confused about how, when you're so concerned, you call a police officer who arrives with a baton. But okay, their concern led to them calling police officers. Four police officers came to the school. Four, one, two, three, four. Came for a 15 year old child. Two women then took her into a room without an adult present. And because the teacher hadn't found any drugs on her other belongings that they had already put their hands and rifled through, Meanwhile, she's still thinking about her exam and the knowledge is leaking out of her brain as the stress and fear is Wow. The police officers then make her strip her clothes. And they do an intimate, this is a trigger warning for those people that are listening to it. They make her strip of her clothes and she tells them, I'm menstruating, I'm on my period. Let's even go into the fact that you've got little girls around the country doing examinations while blood, while iron, while vitamins are leaching out of their bodies, while their stomachs are cramping in pain. And we are still making our girls do examinations that determine their future in those situations. If men bleeded, girls wouldn't go to school on their periods. We'd have days off. Yeah. But leaving aside all that her little body is already carrying, she is then stripped down, stripped down to her underwear, exposing her little body, exposing her young breasts to two strangers, two white female strangers who should absolutely know better. But she's a little black body, so they don't see it as a child's body. They see it as a potential criminal's body. And then what they did was they made her take off her sanitary towel They made her take it off, spread her legs and cough in case she was hiding cannabis up her vaginal canal. The vaginal canal that's bleeding in the little body that is trying to hold in information and write it down in exam pressure conditions has been paraded out in front of her entire school year, made to strip herself. And then she's made to put back on the same dirty pad that has now been put down on a table She's made to put it back after they've looked at it to check that there's no drugs hiding in her pad. <sighs> That's misogynoir, because what we're looking at there is the fact that, okay, that wouldn't happen to a man's body. A man's body would not be seen as public property. And a white girl's body would be held as vulnerable, would be held as precious, would be held as special. And sure as shit, and I'm sorry if the editor needs to cut that out because I said S-H-I-T, sure as S-H-I-T, a little white girl's mother would have been called. Yeah. I tell you the trauma that this community has gone through this this two weeks, two and a half weeks. I've heard people of all ethnicities sit down and cry. It has re-traumatized the black community in this country in a way, and it's the obliviousness because we have been over-policed for seven decades. So there is not one person who is not affected by, does not have a story of Mm -hmm. the the over-policing. And I think it combines with a history of the abuses that have gone on in education from, you know, people like Bernard Cord talking about how the West Indian child has made education is subnormal. So it has brought up so many levels for people. I'd say with every institution, you know, when, we, when I teach about anti-racism, I talk about, you know, structural, institutional, interpersonal and internal racism. It's infected in every asset, every facet of society. And we're seeing the Church of England slowly start to, I don't want to give them credit and say address it because because we're not, but name it, you know, the, the Archbishop, Justin Welby said 
our church is institutionally racist. That means that racism is baked into the very policies, the very structures of our space. And no one bats an eyelid. No one bats an eyelid. But I would say it's, it's all institutions. It's in healthcare. It's in how it's dangerous in this country to be pregnant and black. Yeah. It's three times or even four times more dangerous. It's more likely that your baby won't make it. It's more likely that you won't make it. It's more likely that you will suffer interventions medical harmful interventions and that you will suffer a negative outcome for you or your baby if you happen to be pregnant while being black if you go into the criminal justice system while being black the outcome for you is most likely imprisonment the outcome for someone with white skin whatever gender is most likely to be a caution or some form of probation service so in this country in this world it is dangerous to exist while being black and our our black mother god she knows that our heavenly father, he knows that. He sees that, he grieves that. Yeshua of Nazareth with his brown skin living under an occupied white interloper impressive empire. He knows that. And Jesus is for us and our black and brown bodies. So if you actually want to call yourself the church, you better start being more Jesus-like. Mm. It's pretty much there. And it's it's been a hard journey to reflect on but there, there is something as I said in the timing of God that these conversations have been coming out it's been almost two years since the death of George Floyd almost well we're getting up to two and more than that years since the start of a, a pandemic and we have just been leaning into these kind of conversations in all sorts of ways um we are going to be I'm going to draw our conversation to an end yeah. because this is rich rich stuff but this is not tent dwellers visitors it's going to be the last time you're going to hear from natalia nana she's going to be joining us in a couple of weeks time um, for a conversation that we've probably we've already had with christina cleveland um, it, which actually brings us on quite beautifully from this point about god being a black woman um, so we will be together having that conversation i hope you'll have make time to join us in the interim please listen again um and just chew in on some of the conversations that we have it's not about us agreeing on stuff it is about yeah. us learning to do life together in christ's name in his body um i want to thank you natalia nana thank you for being a friend and being part of the journey of life mm, thank you sister yeah and thank you, fellow listeners. Take care till next time. God bless. Thank you for listening. Thanks to David Backhouse for the theme tune and to Chris Marchand for editing and all the other music. This show only exists because of support from listeners like you. If you have found something we made to be useful, please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talks Patreon page or leave a good review on whichever podcast platform you use to listen. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tenttheology.com.